0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fair Voice. Fair Voice is the podcast of Fair Latter-day Saints, and I am your host, Hannah Syriac. I'm so glad that you are joining us again today. So today's podcast episode is going to be very special, but first, there are two things I want to tell you. The first thing I want to tell you is that you can register for the Fair Latter-day Saint Conference. This is August 4th to August 6th go register for it. It should be a fantastic time. I'll include the link in the description of this episode so that you can go register for the conference. I actually am presenting at this conference. I'm talking about women in ancient temple ceremonies. Should be very interesting. There are other great presentations that I would love for you to hear, including some people that have come on my podcast, like Tark Delacour will be presenting at the conference. So please go and see that. And also go and see the film, The Witnesses. Please go and see The Film, The Witnesses. And with that being said, today's episode is all things The Film, The Witnesses. So first up, we have an interview with Daniel C. Peterson. That's going to be the first part of today's episode. I'm releasing two episodes today. The second part of the episode will be Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery's characters being interviewed. So please stay tuned for the second part. It'll come out same time as the first part. Just make sure to check that out. And without further ado, let's talk to Daniel C. Peterson. Dr. Peterson, could you please introduce yourself to our
1: audience and tell us where, you, where we can find your
2: work? Okay. Um, I am Daniel Peterson. I'm a professor of Islamic studies and Arabic at uh, at BYU for another few weeks. Um, I, I'm stepping away on, on July 1st. Um, but... Um, Let's see, you can find my work in Interpreter, which is uh, a journal that I'm involved with, a foundation that I'm involved with. And, uh, and I also blog monotonously on, uh, on Patheos. Um, my blog is called Sick at Non, Yes and No. which means I approve of things and disapprove of things. Um, and I've lately taken to publishing an article, a column in the Meridian Magazine online, uh, Uh, twice a month. So um, I suppose that's the relevant stuff.
1: Awesome. Thank you. I love when people have blog titles in other languages, especially Latin or Greek or Hebrew. So I think that's very fun. (laughs) Could you tell us a bit about the new film Witnesses that is being created with Interpreter Foundation?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Witnesses is a theatrical film. That is, it's not a documentary. It's It's a dramatic film. Uh, based on real events, they like to say that, but this one really is, and it's it's vitally important, you know, that, that we assert that it is. Um, people have asked me sometimes, well, you know, so is there any fiction in it? Yeah, you know, if you're going to make a film, you have to create some conversation. We didn't have tape recordings of Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris everywhere they went, so... But a lot of the language, even in the conversations, is taken from things that are in the records. So the statements they make in conversation may or may not have been made in that particular conversation, but they were made by them. And it's about the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. It's, it's, so part of the difficulty in making it and in crafting it was that it's about, um, it's about four protagonists, not just one. So, you have Joseph Smith, obviously, who's deeply involved in it, but then uh, uh, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whitmer. And telling the story of, you know, how they got involved um, and how they fell away. And then what happened uh, to their testimonies? I'll give away the surprise. Uh, They never denied what they saw. but I think one thing I would say about and I have to warn people about this, it's a faith promoting film, I think, but it's also a historically accurate film. And so you will see um, bruised egos and controversial issues, the origins of plural marriage, uh, uh, the crash of the Kirtland Bank in 1837, uh, which offended a lot of people and sent a lot of people into dissent and apostasy, including the witnesses. and. Uh, and you'll see Joseph Smith at a couple of points getting upset, angry. Um, we're, what we're trying to show, I think, as we've formulated is that we're, we're depicting an emerging prophet. He's a young man and he's learning, I, want, I don't wanna say learning his craft, but, but he's learning how to be a prophet. And it takes a while and I'm sure he would have said he was still learning in 1844, but uh, uh, we're not trying to present a perfect human being but a good one, but one who under really trying circumstances sometimes was not altogether happy. And so I tell people it's not a, it's not a church visitors center film where they tend to make everything just sweetness and light. You know, and the, the witnesses just, if they mention that they left, they don't tell why. We tell why and kind of show them leaving, but then showing them maintaining their testimonies and so on. So it's, um, it's a film that, the sort of warts and all, but, but the all is much more important than the warts.
1: I really enjoyed watching it for those reasons. It was very refreshing for me to see, especially the character of Joseph Smith in, it, in a different light. I think um, the person who played Joseph Smith, who I'm interviewing later today, had a lot of emotion when playing the role. And it was really beautiful to see sort of unplanned, spontaneous outbursts of emotion, too. One question that I have for you about The historical records of the witnesses is uh, there are a couple of claims that people make in order to discount the witnesses. So I want to talk about a couple of the big ones. The first one that I want to talk about is uh, the claim that they only saw the plates with their spiritual eyes. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think it's, I think they were struggling to express what had happened to them. you know but they would go on to say look but it was as literal as anything else you see they just felt that they'd been able to see divine things they ordinarily didn't see i don't normally see angels when i'm walking down the street or driving around but they saw an angel and they heard the voice of god and and the plates were delivered to them by an angel so their their comment was that it was well several of them talk about the glory that surrounded them. This is again not a typical earthly thing. I think they were struggling for it because you know they would say, Look, I I I saw things just as clearly as I have ever seen them. Martin Harris had a particular formula that he you can tell it's Martin Harris because he almost always says a similar thing in, in accounts written by probably 15 or 20 people that I know of. He'll say, you know, young man, when he was really old, uh, young man. Do you see that tree over there? Just as clearly as you see that tree, I saw the plates. Or young man, do you see the sun shining? I saw the plates as clearly as you see the sun shining. He's trying to emphasize the reality of it. Plus, you have a check on this spiritualized business in the the case of the Eight Witnesses, who are, they're not the focus of this film. I should say there's a documentary following that will pick up on the Eight Witnesses. Uh, that'll be ready in, I don't know, three months, four months, something like that. Um, but the eight witnesses have an entirely non-miraculous experience with the plates. They go out into a grove of trees, and there are the plates. And they're allowed to heft them and to turn the, the leaves of the plates. No angels, no voice of God, uh, no glorious light or anything like that. It's just an afternoon in the woods, and I think that's sort of a check on the claim that it wasn't real. Plus, uh, the, the, uh, the documentary is going to also uh, address to some degree, at least what we call, what I call the informal witnesses, the additional witnesses, many of them women, by the way, uh, who have experiences that are quite spontaneous of, of holding the plates, turning, or well, uh, feeling the leaves of the plates scrape against the ones below, feeling the ring on the one side, feeling the edge, um, feeling how heavy they were. Um, they're very, very matter-of-fact down to things. I mean, Emma Smith has an experience while dusting, apparently. Uh, it's not much, nothing is more mundane than dusting, I think. And she feels the plates while nobody else is there. It's not a, she's not in a moment of spiritual ecstasy. She's not having a vision. She's just dusting and there's an object on the table. And uh, I've told my wife sometimes when she complains about the continual litter around my side of the bed, the books stacked up and the papers and everything, look, you're not really seeing it. You're having a vision. This is a spiritual experience, you know? I mean, if if dusting is a spiritual experience and a visionary experience, then cleaning up after me ought to be too.
1: I love that. I I think that's fantastic. And I I like the point that you made that there, there are already checks in place to sort of combat this particular claim. One other claim that people like to make, especially about Martin Harris, is that he explored a number of different religions before joining the church and then afterwards too. How would you respond to that particular claim?
2: I would say Martin Harris was definitely what what is called sometimes by historians, a seeker. He was looking for something. He was not satisfied with what he had in Palmyra pre-1829, 1828. So he was looking around. Um, the more crucial period is is the period after his experience as a witness when he looks around in various ways. So he he goes to various schismatic sects. He's unhappy. And I think this is actually a strong point for, for the witness's testimony. He's unhappy with the course the church has taken. In his case, I think there really is a bruised ego. And we depict it in the film that he felt that he'd you know, he'd given money, he'd sacrificed so much, and he never got leadership positions. You know, he never he never got the, the grand uh, assignments that some others got. I'd say Martin, and I think historians who've studied him say this as well, uh, Martin was the kind of person who, um, who probably just wasn't made out for, for great grand leadership positions, but he was a good, solid citizen. The people in Palmyra had appointed him to various you know, community functions, fence inspector, and things like that, um, inspector of roads, things of that sort. So they they trusted him, but he was never elected mayor. Now, curiously, David Whitmer is elected, or is chosen as mayor of Richmond, Missouri. After his witness experience, that amazes me. Despite the fact that he'd been involved with the Book of Mormon and the plates, the people in Missouri, Missouri of all places, elected him or chose him as mayor of Richmond. That says a great deal about him. But Martin Martin dallies for a while with different groups. All but one of them are schismatic uh, factions of the Restoration. So in every one of them, he's still reaffirming his testimony to the Book of Mormon. I mean, really dramatically so. He serves a mission for the Strangite offshoot of, of the Restoration to England. But when he goes to England, all he preaches is the Book of Mormon and he bears his testimony as one of the witnesses and they finally get so tired of it. He's not serving their purposes. They send him home. He's not there to preach the doctrines of James Jesse Strang. He's there to preach the Book of Mormon. And he tells them, if that's that's not what you want, then you got the wrong guy. The only group that he flirts with for a while, but we don't have much record of how much it was, was the so-called Shakers. But he never joins. I think he may just have been intrigued by their claim that there was modern revelation, and he wanted to check it out because he knew there was. But he he doesn't stay, uh, and then eventually, of course, he makes the difficult journey for a very old man out to Salt Lake City you know, in the nineteenth century. Uh, it's rough. It's not like flying transcontinental where you complain about your uh, uh, you know you get pretzels and peanuts or something like that and get a middle seat. No, he has to make his way out to uh, to Salt Lake City and then up to uh, Cache Valley. Uh, and he rejoins the church and bears fervent testimony for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, I find that very compelling, too, that, you know, even though he was sort of a, a more creatively minded person in a lot of ways that he ended up in a different spot one thing that I would like to transition to talking about, too, is the way that the translation of the Book of Mormon is depicted in the film. There has been an increase of individuals who like to claim that Joseph Smith never used a seer stone at all, that yeah. he only used the of and Thummim. And I find this claim to be very dangerous and false. And I would like to take some time to talk about the historical records that are involved with determining what the translation process is and how to approach them.
2: Yeah, the testimonies of witnesses to the seer stone are, there are a lot of them. I mean, I just don't know any way you can get around this. Uh, You can allege a conspiracy, I suppose, but that's about your only recourse. Uh, It's pretty clear that Joseph did use a seer stone at at various points, actually for most of the translation. Now, how exactly that works, I don't have the faintest idea, having never used a seer stone. Uh, I think it's it's pretty obvious that uh, at some point he no longer needs it. He says so. He gives the stone away, says, I don't need it. In the film, uh, it's obvious the Whitmers really cared about the seer stone. And when, when Joseph stops using it, they complain. And in the film, um, Joseph says something like, well, that was milk before meat. You know, uh, I think it was like, to me, like training wheels on a bicycle in a way. That once he learns how to do it, he doesn't need the stone. The stone was not significant. The stone was if I were to speculate about what its function was, it might be that it was some sort of thing to concentrate the mind, you focus on the stone, exclude other things and the spirit comes to you like Joseph in Genesis using his divining cup. Um, It's not that he needs the cup, but somehow that helped. Um, And um, so, you know, to me, the people who say that there was no seer stone involved, they're just throwing out the historical records. And I mean, history is, History is much easier when you throw out the primary documents. Uh, just toss them and make up whatever you like. But, uh, but those who are trying to be serious historians can't do that. Now, you know, if there's an outlier or something like that, then you evaluate that in the balance of the overall, overall documentation. But there's plenty of documentation for the seer stone. And from friendly sources, these are not critics of the church. These are people who, who knew it firsthand and supported it. So I, I just think we have to realize, too, that, that Joseph's world is not quite ours. Uh, and God will speak to us wherever we are using whatever means. Um, and, and that was a means that was acceptable in, in Joseph's circles in upstate New York in the early 1800s. So that's how God spoke to him.
1: I definitely agree. I think we have to work with the sources that we have, but also be sensitive to the time period too, where you know this sort of frontier magic culture was seen as part of Christianity, not something that was separate from it. One question that I have regarding Joseph Smith specifically is in the film, there's this fantastic scene where he's running with the plates. And this has already received some criticism. You wrote a blog post about it. Um, I would like to talk for a couple of minutes here about how could Joseph Smith run with those plates? I think it's a bit of a silly question, but I think it's worth asking.
2: Yeah, there are people who've said that right there proves that he's a liar. He couldn't have run with plates that heavy and so on. Well, we've got empirical proof that he could have. And and I'm leaving out even questions of adrenaline, uh, a mob pursuing you, that might help. Um, and, and divine aid, I'll leave that out too. Let's just bracket it because, uh, you know, I'm presuming there probably was divine aid and there certainly must've been adrenaline, um, but he, we know that he could do it because our actor did it. And, you know, Joseph was a strapping young lad who spent his day clearing rocks and cutting down trees. I'm pretty sure he was as, as fit as anybody could be. He was a young man at that time and he did physical labor all day, every day. Our actor is, is obviously a, a fit young guy, um, but he doesn't do physical labor all day. Most of us don't. Uh, and yet he did it. He carried plates and the prop plates where if I recall specifically uh, 35 and 45 pounds, they, we had two different sets. We had the, what we called the hero set, which was 45 pounds. Now the estimates for the weight of the plates from, from witnesses in the 19th century put them at between 40 and 60. And the, I think the more reputable ones put them closer to 40. So in other words, that hero set is about the right weight. Um, and our actor had to carry them up the hill and run down the hill, jumping over logs, as shown in the movie. Those aren't those aren't uh, uh, computer graphic logs. Those are real logs. He's running through the brush and through tree branches and so on, and uh, and he did it over and over and over again. Anybody who's ever been involved in a film shoot knows that you don't just do it once. You do it multiple times to get it right. Also, to do it from different angles, and so every time he had to go up the hill, carrying those plates, run down the hill, carrying those plates. And so we know that Joseph could have done it because Paul did it in the movie, our, our actor, Paul Wathrich. Um, Oh, by the way, let me mention something else I wanted to mention earlier on. One of the complaints I heard about the film early on was, oh, the actors are so young. And I immediately asked, how old do you think the real people were? Our actors are the same age. You know, they're young. If, if that shocks you, it should shock you. They were really young. And so that's why I say we're showing a prophet who's emerging, he's still a very young man. And suddenly he's, he's called to be a prophet and I'm sure he doesn't really know how to do that. Uh, so he has to be trained, but, but he is young. But, but the fact is we've now got empirical proof that running through the woods with plates is possible. Because I'm glad
1: crazy. that that's there, you know, because I, I do think that that's a pretty simple one. Um, carrying yeah. 45 pounds is not that hard. No.
2: Um, <laughs> and, and I've had people, by the way, tell me, oh, you know, when you're in the military, you carry packs that are much heavier than that and and so on. And then they make you run and you they march you and, and all that sort of thing. It's hard. It's not fun, but it's certainly doable.
1: Oh, for sure. One interesting thing that the film also depicts is how people close to the witnesses did not believe in the Book of Mormon, did not believe that the plates were real. How do you think um, you would respond to this particular uh, potential criticism of those witnesses?
2: That there were people who didn't believe them. Well, it's a pretty spectacular claim. I mean, especially with the three that an ancient book was found in a hillside right near your home. Uh, it was revealed by an angel. The voice of God endorsed it. And this Joe Smith is a prophet. I mean, I always ask myself, it's easy for me to venerate prophets who are long ago, far away. The closer they are, the more human they are, because they are human. And would it, I've sometimes asked myself, would I? I hope I would have. But would I have accepted Jesus had I been living in first century Palestine? Okay, it's one thing to believe in God. Great. It's another thing to believe that he has a divine son. But the guy I grew up with, the one that lives in our village, really? Uh, there's, there's an obvious barrier to belief right there. And I think a lot of people just, they, just, they were shocked. It was, you, you get uh, statements from people who say, well, we were positive it was a fraud, but, but, uh, but when Martin Harris got involved, we were shocked that a person of his judgment and so on would believe this. Or with David Whitmer, uh, there's a a testimony given by a man right after David's death to a Chicago, it's not the Chicago Tribune, I can't remember the name of the newspaper, long gone now. Uh, And um, uh, anyway, the person says, look, we always knew him to be a trustworthy man. Um, How he got in with the Mormons, we just don't know. Um, but, but there's a striking thing in that, in that, uh, in that article, he says, the man says he was a man who would have sent someone to the gallows, whose word would have sent someone to the gallows faster than any other person I've ever known. there's kind of an odd way of saying it, but I think it's a way of saying that even in matters of life and death, you would trust David Whitmer. So all he can do is express his puzzlement because he's not willing to believe what David Whitmer says, but man... David Whitmer of all people is so trustworthy. How could he possibly testify? He says it remains a mystery. Well, there's one easy way to solve the mystery. He's telling the truth, but that was a bridge too far for some of them, many of them.
1: That's a good point. One of the most powerful parts of the film for me deals with Sidney Rigdon, right? Who is also a respected person. Um, And there's this fantastic scene where Sidney Rigdon leaves his congregation or tries to convert his entire congregation uh there are two questions that i have and i'll ask the first one now the first one is there have been claims that Sidney Rigdon and joseph smith wrote the book of mormon together and that they had been planning this for a long time could you please address this claim
2: yeah this the so-called spaulding manuscript theory you know that that they Got their hands on a manuscript from uh, Solomon from Solomon Spaulding and uh, and then purloined passages from it or you know whole chapters. Um, well, you know, it was easy to say that for a long time because the Spaulding manuscript had disappeared and then it was found in a steamer trunk in Hawaii of all places. And it bears no real resemblance to the Book of Mormon. So then the theory came out of a second Spaulding manuscript. And I'm thinking, yeah, there probably never was one. But even if they found it and it bore no resemblance to the Book of Mormon, there would be a third Solomon Spaulding manuscript theory. I mean, the thing is unfalsifiable. There's no evidence that Sidney Rigdon knew Solomon Spaulding or that Sidney Rigdon knew Joseph Smith prior to the time when Oliver Cowdery came through Kirtland. I mean, there's just no historical evidence for this. I've seen, I've seen a lot of really strained efforts to prove it. But uh, in fact, when I was fairly young, when I was a teenager in California, uh, there was an article that came out uh, in the L.A. Times that was thought to just knock the LDS Church on its on its back. You know, some handwriting analysts had looked at at the Spaulding manuscript, concluded that the handwriting of Solomon Spaulding was in the manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Um, well, it got all sorts of national attention, but within a couple of days, um, one handwriting analyst still stuck by his story, but the other two said, no, this is ridiculous. We're not experts in early 19th century handwriting where they all learned penmanship in school and they kind of followed models. And it's all very similar. Once we got a chance to really look at it, it's not the same handwriting at all. I mean, once again, the case collapsed. Um, but I knew a couple of people who left the church over that one. And, and when within the week, the, the, the thing fizzled, they didn't come back. So, you know, I guess, I don't know if you're looking for an excuse to leave, that's as good as any, but, uh, but uh, there, I just don't see any merit in the Spaulding Manuscript Theory, none. And, and no historians have, even people like Fon Brody, the uh, ex-Mormon biographer of Joseph Smith in the 1940s, whose book is still really popular among critics, She had no time for the Spaulding Manuscript Theory. She didn't believe it at all. And almost nobody ever has. There was a book that came out. This is just kind of funny. Sorry. There was a book that came out arguing for a rebirth of the Spaulding Manuscript Theory. Some, well, it was the very one that caused that episode when I was a teenager. It's called Who Really Wrote the Book of Mormon? And one of the authors was a guy named Wayne Cowdery. And he claimed that he was a descendant of Oliver Cowdery. Now he spelled his name R E Y instead of E R Y, and he said, "Well, that was just a family variation." Oh no, it wasn't. Oliver Cowdery had only one um, had only one child, a daughter who married, so her name wasn't even Cowdery anymore. And there are no surviving Cowderys. Uh, if this guy was a descendant of Oliver Cowdery, it's a miracle. It's an astonishing miracle. After several generations of no posterity, Oliver suddenly has one. I mean, how does this work exactly? I mean, these were not reputable uh, researchers.
1: I definitely agree. Um, my, my second question about Sidney Rigdon is what happened to Sidney Rigdon after his first in, his early encounters with Joseph Smith?
2: Yeah, you know, he, he goes on, he's involved with the vision of section 76. Uh, he is in the first presidency and then he has a falling out with Joseph. And some have thought that it had to do even with the episode in, um, in Hiram, Ohio, where they were tarred and feathered and Sidney really got knocked around badly. Some have said he never quite recovered after that. His head was, was injured seriously. Um, anyway, uh, he remains in the first presidency at the end of Joseph's life, you know, when there's a question about succession in the presidency, he makes a claim to be the guardian of the church. Uh, the assembled saints reject that claim and sustain the 12 under the leadership of Brigham Young as the, uh, as the new leadership of the church. But Sidney Rigdon never renounces his, uh, his belief in the Book of Mormon. He goes back, tries to start a little church. He, he testifies. His son um, actually um, uh, interviews him very near to his death and says, dad, you know, look, you have testified to the Book of Mormon all your life. Now you're about to die. You're about to face God. Please tell me the truth. And he says, I tell you the truth. I never saw Joseph Smith before, you know, the time that we all know he did. And I had no role in the production of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is of God. And, uh, and the son, on the strength of that, some years later actually joins the church in Utah. So, I mean, unless unless Sydney is just a completely... A uh, conscienceless uh, uh, scoundrel, he testifies to his son on his deathbed to the things that we know to be true.
1: One other sort of related question is why do so many of the witnesses leave the church? Yeah, we talked a little bit about this with bruised egos, but I like to have more specifics. As many people use that to discount their witness of the Book of Mormon. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they left. I mean, the 1830s were a really stressful time. And each of the uh, witnesses left, I think, for a slightly different reason. Oliver Cowdery, clearly one of the things was was early plural marriage. That really bothered him. Um, With David Whitmer, I think it's more the sense that, well, as he put it once, I didn't leave the church, the church left me. Uh, he really liked the early days of the church before there was hierarchy, before there were priesthood offices, It was just a small group. It, it couldn't remain that, but he loved the early days of Palmyra, um, when, when everybody was on the same level and, and it was a close-knit, small community. Um, that, I think, was a major factor with David, and he, and he and his family continue with a kind of family church, as it were, in Richmond, Missouri, for uh, well, until they're all gone, uh, and maybe even some of the grandchildren or the children of of David and and John and Jacob and so on, um, they still believe in the Book of Mormon. They still venerate the manuscript which they had, uh, the printer's manuscript, and. And But it, it's the small church that, that David and the other Whitmer brothers remembered. And they're very tightly knit. They were a German immigrant community in uh, in New York and they remain close. You can describe it as a family church. When they leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they leave as a family, including Hiram Page, who was a, a brother-in-law and Oliver Cowdery eventually was a brother-in-law too. And so I think there's an element of family cohesion there that they they're kind of offended and they they just like the smaller scale martin harris i think it really is to an extent bruised ego that he never felt that he got the leadership position in the church that that his sacrifices deserved and you know in a way i'd say they do although I think really, leadership, you want that as a reward? I try to avoid it, but, (laughs) you know. Um, But I I think he just didn't feel that he got the status or something, it it hurt his feelings. Here he was, he'd stood by Joseph from the start, the earliest of the witnesses to know Joseph probably. And um, he felt sort of shunted aside that all he was ever, and this is in the film too, all they ever want from me is my money. so you know, it's a complex series of things, but it has to do, oh, and, and I didn't even mention the Kirtland Bank fiasco. Oliver Cowdery uh, is, a, is an American of the early 19th century, He believes in liberty, you know, freedom. He can, he can spend his money where he wants, he can own property if he wants, and his life is up to him. The church has always been sort of counter to that in a way, not that it coerces you, but that it will call you to do things you wouldn't have chosen to do. And if you're a good member of the church, you do them, you know. Um, you may be, your career may be swimming along, but you're called suddenly to go serve a mission in who knows where, out of Mongolia, and for three years or something. And you go. Um, uh, Elder Oaks uh, is a good example of that, President Oaks, you know. He'd even been mentioned for the US Supreme Court. Suddenly he's out of the running. He's, he's a member of the Quorum of the 12, that's it. It will never, these grand and glorious dreams of legal stature, he will never have. Um, and that's happened with a lot of them, You know, give up very lucrative careers. That's always been the way of the church. You could say in a way that's anti-American uh, that we should be able to pursue our own dreams. Well, yeah, you can in the church um, it's we're not coerced to give up that liberty. We voluntarily give it up, we put it on the altar. But that was part of the clash between Joseph and Oliver. And again, it's depicted in the film that uh, Oliver didn't think the church ought to be involved in economic affairs. Joseph thought, at least here, it really ought to be, it had to be. There was a question of how to, how to handle all the incoming converts to Kirtland. The church had to be involved in land and organizing economic ventures to give them jobs and give them places to stay. And, uh, and so it was a clash between a sort of church ethos and the Yankee ethos you know, of, of early 19th century America. That's par- that also plays a role in their apostasy. But to me, uh, this point needs to be reinforced. Um, it, their apostasies do not weaken their testimony. They strengthen them it's astonishing, you know, that at any point, David Whitmer, who's interviewed until 1888, could have said, well, okay, you know, I've been thinking about this. I'm not sure I really saw what I thought I saw. It was some distance away. It was a little hazy. But he never does. He always insists, no, I saw the angel as clearly as I see you, he'll say to a, to a reporter or an interviewer. And the one one thing that I really like, and I want to get into one of the one of the films, maybe even the snippets or on the website somewhere is, um, is an image of the tombstone on David Whitmer's grave. There's a pillar there. And on one side of the pillar, it says, uh, it, well, it has two books carved on the top of the pillar, clearly the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And, uh, and then it says, uh, the record of the Jews and the record of the Nephites are one. Truth is eternal. So David wanted to continue testifying after his death I mean, that's, that's really pretty powerful stuff. One of the best arguments I ever heard against David was someone said to me once, well, he was just terrified of Brigham Young. Brigham Young would have had him done in if he'd ever dared tell the truth. Well, Brigham Young, when, when uh, David dies in 1888, has been dead for 11 years. Brigham can't get him anymore. And now David himself is dead and he puts his testimony in his tombstone. Now surely he's free to tell the truth at that point. Well, David would say, I am telling the truth. The record of the Jews and the record of the Nephites are one. Truth is eternal.
1: I think that's kind of funny. That's a that's a really good one. I, I hadn't really thought of, about the fact that Young was dead at that point. Um, <laughs> one theme throughout the, throughout the film is that Joseph Smith is an emerging prophet, as we've talked about, but also that Joseph Smith sort of struggles with those around him as he's making decisions about the church. And I think that that's, um, troublesome for some people. Could we talk a little bit about how Joseph Smith sort of received revelation that became Doctrine and Covenants, but also about the transition from Joseph Smith to Brigham Young and how that was sort of disconcerting for the people around him?
2: Yeah, yeah. Joseph received a lot of revelations um, and a lot of them are written. If you look at the Doctrine and Covenants, look at the the timeline. There's a huge cluster of them. In you know the late 1820s, through the mid 1830s, um, he received all sorts of revelations. and I would say, honestly, I don't wanna get in trouble here, but some of them are probably revelations that nowadays we would not probably canonize. They're revelations to specific people, uh, sort of like what a person would get in a patriarchal blessing or another kind of blessing or something like that, because now the church is much larger and President Nelson doesn't typically receive revelation telling me you know, what I should do tomorrow or something like that. Um, So he got a lot of revelations. Some of them were spectacular revelations, section 76, these enormous visions and so on. Many of them were were inspiration that came to him that then he had to struggle to express in language. Um, And so he didn't feel any reluctance later on to alter them, to get them more right. Uh, I know whenever I've tried to write down a really meaningful experience in my life, I've struggled with it, exactly how to put this. Uh, here's this. No, that's not right. It was sort of this, but not quite. Um, and I think that that happens a little with Joseph. But finally, they reach a fixed form and they're published. Um, and um, and so, yeah, he he received revelation, but he received it quite often in meetings. There are descriptions of him receiving revelations in meetings, and sometimes people would say he actually took on a kind of unearthly glow. Some say it looked like his skin was almost translucent or something, you know. Uh, They could tell he was receiving a revelation. He would look off in the distance and begin dictating. Uh, And then they knew, grab the pen and paper and start writing this down because this is really important. Um, And so, you know, that's, that's, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but there's a lot of revelation like that. Brigham Young... Um, also receives revelation. He alluded to it quite a bit. He has only one canonized revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants, but we know he had other revelations. He said, for example, you know, you're puzzled by the fact that, um, that the Salt Lake Temple will have six spires. Well, that's what I saw in the vision. you know, um, And so we have to build it this way. So we just know that he didn't submit as many to be canonized. But then he was continuing the late Joseph Smith's practice joseph didn't submit as many either but he was still receiving revelations just they weren't typically written out i don't know if that answers your question or not
1: that does that's perfect um with that being said the the last question specifically about the witnesses that i want to ask before talking a little bit more about the film generally is doctrine and covenants five has been used to say that only three witnesses um there were only three witnesses to the golden plates, which the book of Mormon was translated from. How would you respond to that particular criticism?
2: Oh, there are other passages that say, well, and others may be called. Yeah. Um, and uh, might take me a second to find that, but uh, um, let's see. Testimony of three witnesses. Um, I'll give them power, yeah, they will know of a surety, but, uh, but there, will be, there will be others. It never says um, that, uh, it says to none else will I grant this power to receive this same testimony, which is true, the three witnesses are unique. The eight witnesses have a very different experience. Uh, there are other passages that say that some others can be called, but it doesn't specify the number. I've wondered sometimes if the number eight wasn't chosen to make up with Joseph Smith and the three, uh, 12. You know, the, and you could say, well, that's connected with 12 apostles, but it's also connected with the American and Anglo-Saxon idea of 12 just men and true that make up the jury. So here you have a jury of people testifying that important number 12, which has been in place since the early middle ages in, in Western European tradition. It's also a reason I suspect why the women weren't included because women weren't permitted to serve on juries um, or, to, or even to testify in court until surprisingly late. I mean, I was astonished to discover that uh, that one Southern state, which shall not be named, uh, barred women from serving in juries into the 1950s. Um, so if there had been women among the witnesses in the 1820s, 1830, I think at least some Americans would have said, yeah, well, you can't trust them uh you know so
1: ironically we saw the same thing with uh mary yes the apostles when jesus was there
2: even the apostles say "Eh, it seemed to them as idle tales you know so when when you see paul listing the witnesses to the resurrection paul the pharisaic lawyer he doesn't even cite the women at the tomb they just you know now we can speculate as to the reason but my suspicion is it's because they wouldn't have counted in a jewish court um and so it's only it's only later that uh, that we begin to appreciate the fact that a woman was the first one to see the resurrected Christ. And it's very possible that a woman that would be uh, uh, Mary Whitmer was the first to see the plates, other than Joseph. I mean, we don't know exactly when her experience happened, but she may be the very first. Um, so it's um, it's it's pretty interesting um, that you have those groups. Um, But, you know, had the list been put together today, I don't know, maybe a woman would have been called or five women or who knows what. But they certainly had experiences, um, which in some ways are worthy to be included. Or I think in in many ways, worthy to be included among the official witnesses.
1: That makes a lot of sense. With the film specifically, one interesting part of it is that you have non-Latter-day Saint actors in it. Was there a particular reason for that choice?
2: No, we just did a casting call. And uh, and those are the people we got. We had no particular... Well, yeah, there, there is one reason. We wanted to get some fresh faces. There are certain faces that show up in LDS films all the time. And we wanted to get some that you just haven't seen because they've never been in LDS films. Heck, they didn't even know anything about us. They'd never heard of Oliver Cowdery or Martin Harris or David Whitmer. And so that was good. And I think they are fresh. And they bring a fresh... Um, spirit to it. When they're astonished at something in the movie, it's because they probably just learned about it three minutes before, and they are astonished. Um, Paul Wutherich has said, and you may get this from him in his interview, that, uh, that he had long discussions with the two principal non-LDS actors, and, and they were just full of questions. And when the question came up, um, I think it's the Oliver Cowdery uh, character, Caleb Spivak, who says, you mean you have a prophet now? He says, yes, we do. Well, well, does he say things? I mean, can you can you hear him? Yeah, he said, general conference is coming up. You'll be able to hear him, you know? And they were just blown away by that. Um, and, uh, and so that made for some fun missionary moments, if you will, on the set. You know, Paul between the scenes, walking along with them while the crew is setting up somewhere else, talking with them about the church. Uh, now, Paul is a return missionary and Lincoln Hop, or Hopper, Uh, H-O-P-P-E who plays uh, Martin Harris is also an active member of the church but a lot of the others and many of the extras are not when we're filming back in uh, you know Massachusetts and so on you get whatever you get now it turns out I'm learning that there are members of the Boston Stake who came out for it so maybe a lot of them are LDS but we made no requirement that they be
1: I was wondering if part of it was filmed in Massachusetts. I'm from Massachusetts, so it did look a little bit familiar to me. So good to know that.
2: It's filmed in Old Sturbridge Village, uh, so about an hour out of Boston, hour and a half, and uh, and then also in Upper Canada Village in Ontario, and uh, some at the LDS Motion Picture Studios. Some at this is the place Monument up in Salt Lake, where they have a lot of old-style buildings. You know, initially I thought naive, non filmmaker that I am, oh, we'll make them in Palmyra. Well, you can't, there are are streets and power lines and traffic and you can't, and tourists, we can't go in there for days on end and tell the tourists, sorry, you may have driven across the country to see this place, but you can't get in. Um, So we went to these sort of preserved villages that that preserve the look of the 19th century. and you know, they've deliberately kept power lines out and they keep cars away. And, and that's they're, they're living museums, living history museums. And those fit our purposes better.
1: That makes sense. I grew up going to Sturbridge Village all the time. So it did look very familiar and ah. I had wondered that. <laughs> what type of historical research went into the film? How much preparation was done for this particular film?
2: There was quite a bit, but one of the nice things about it is that, um, is, is that a lot of that research has been done. Uh, and uh, uh, I always recommend to people, the absolutely indispensable starting place for, uh, for study of the witnesses to my mind is Richard Lloyd Anderson's book, Investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses. In fact, that's really the genesis of the film. We were doing a small film interviewing Richard Anderson and his brother, Carl, who lives near Kirtland and has been the, the bishop and the state president is now the patriarch over Kirtland. And President Hinckley dubbed him Mr. Kirtland because he's kind of responsible for the restoration there. Um, And so we'd interviewed uh, Carl and then we were going to interview Richard and uh, which I'm delighted that we did. I was worried, he was very old, he was in his nineties and we got an interview with him and he died about a year later. So, you know, I was just worried. I said, look, even if we don't know what to do with the footage, I want to get the footage while we can. We can decide what to do with it later, but, but if we wait too long, we won't get him at all. Um, and by the way, the, the theatrical film is dedicated to Richard Lloyd Anderson, a witness to the witnesses, uh, is what it says at the end of the film. But um, he had done a lot of the work in that book. Uh, oh, I, I didn't finish my story. To prepare for the interview, I gave a copy of the book to the members, the principal members of the crew, uh, Russell Richens and Mark Goodman and James Jordan. And they read it, and they called me up one night. I still remember this phone call, and it was, it was kind of funny. It was like, we need to talk. And they said, can you come over right now? And I said, yeah, I can. It's not far away. Uh, and I said, we've read this book. This is a fantastic story. This, this needs to be a movie. And, and that was music to my ears because my wife will testify. I've always been somewhat obsessed with the witnesses. I think they're very, very important and neglected in the church. And so that book, in a way, was the genesis of the film. Um, so that book served as a as a good basic um, uh, primer. Uh, and Richard did a lot of things beyond that book. And there are other books on the witnesses, and we read quite a bit of material. And you know, so that as I said at the beginning, the the film is not, you know, it, it's based on history, and and I mean pretty closely. You have to you have to fictionalize here and there. I mean, we don't know what Joseph Smith said to Oliver Cowdery the first time they met. It's not recorded anywhere, but you can guess pretty closely. And we didn't make many guesses. That is, the the, the guesses are are few and far between in what is otherwise pretty solid historical stuff.
1: One of the things that I like about the film is that it focuses on the witnesses because I think the witnesses to the restoration are like the witnesses to the resurrection in the sense that their testimony is the one that Jesus explicitly tells us. We have to believe on their words. Right. Um, so that parallel there for me is very strong. Where can people find out if they can see the witness film and when does it come out?
2: Uh, if you go to witness film, witnesses film, sorry, plural witnesses film uh, dot com. I should have looked this up, but I think it's witnessesfilm.com. Uh, you can see the trailer. You can go to a place where it says how to buy tickets. Um, You can, if you want to, and I know uh, this sounds outlandish to me, but if you own a movie theater, uh, you can show it. There are some Latter-day Saints out there who do. I thought that was kind of funny, but apparently it's a real prospect. And then it says, if you want to rent a theater, uh, you can contact them and they'll help make the arrangements. And in fact, some people are doing that for large family groups, or, or for uh, stake, young men, young women groups, things like that. Um, so that is, that's a really good site. That's kind of the portal into everything else. And then, uh, then there is another website that we're developing called Witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and that one is one that I think is really important. I, my dream for it is that it will ultimately be a repository for just about everything that's solid on the witnesses. That is all of the still existing witness statements, biographies, timelines, answers to questions, things like that. So that was launched a couple of months ago and it's, it's still expanding and will continue to expand, well, possibly for decades. It'll outlive the movies in a way.
1: That's awesome. And I would encourage you if you're listening to this, to make sure to go and see the film or to try to set up the film in your area. It's really important that you see it. I absolutely loved it. I've seen it, I think three or four times at this point and I I've loved it. Yeah, so I've really enjoyed it. Um, I like to close with varying testimony of the Book of Mormon. So I, if you would feel comfortable doing that, I'd invite you to do that.
2: Yeah, my testimony of the Book of Mormon rests on a whole lot of things. One is simply you know the spiritual witness and the, the spiritual power that I feel in the book. I mean, I will find myself—not myself—not all the time, but often reading it and thinking, "My word, this is good," or "This is way beyond Joseph Smith." I can't see some frontier yokel making this up. If I were to, if I were to offer a single, simple, secular testimony for the book, I would simply say this: I have not been able to formulate in my own mind a counter-explanation for the book that works oh, you can explain this or that away if you assume certain things. But often those explanations will contradict some other explanation you need elsewhere to take care of this aspect. I mean, I I remember going going at it with a critic at one point who was saying the Book of Romans is not true. And I said, okay, so tell me, how did Joseph do it? He said, well, it's not my job to propose that. I said, no, actually, at some point it is. You need to offer a counter hypothesis, a different explanation. Oh, I don't need to do that. I said, well, this is like guerrilla warfare. You just attack and attack and attack. You never try to occupy territory where you can be attacked. Um, it's it's kind of a game, but you don't win wars that way. You've got to eventually occupy territory, and, uh, and you're too cowardly to do it. I didn't put it that way, but... Uh, you need to do that because then you expose yourself to criticism. You won't, you won't do it, right? Just you want to lob criticisms. I can't think of an explanation for the whole thing. I, you know, I can't think of a single explanation for the two distinct groups of official witnesses. Okay, Joseph made some plates and faked out the yokels. Fine, I don't believe he could have, it's harder than it sounds, but let's suppose that he did baked out the yokels. How do you explain the three witnesses with the voice of God, the angel, everything else? You try to explain them. You say, well, it was hallucination. Well, then that doesn't explain the eight who go out into a grove of trees, you know, in the afternoon and half the plates. These are farmers. who are pretty hard-headed, I'm guessing, and uh, they're, they're not easy, easily taken in by, by yarns. Um, I can't find a single explanation to account for those two things, let alone all the other things, the, the elements of the ancient Near East that I see in the Book of Mormon, the, the incredibly complex um, structure of the Book of Mormon, the speed with which Joseph dictated it, uh, clearly without any writing, or written materials in his presence. I mean, he's, if he's making it up, he's making it up on the fly. And I think, I couldn't do that, seriously? I mean, to write a book of that length first draft, basically, and, you know, you never revise, and you just make it up on the fly, and then it's published, right? Who writes like that? Uh, it just does not happen, and um, and so, you know, just on secular grounds, on spiritual grounds, the power of the Book of Mormon, I am absolutely convinced when I try to talk myself out of it, and I've tried, uh, I've tried to say, all right, look at this honestly. Can you come up with another explanation? I can't, I just can't, it's it's a, it's a rock that's hard to get around. Um, as President Holland says, you have to climb over this book or dig under it. And I can't, I just can't. Um, so I believe the Book of Mormon to be true. And I think it's a sign and a symbol, uh, a testimony of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling that there really were plates. There really was an angel in the voice of God at the beginning of the restoration. And boy, a whole lot else follows from that. Uh, you may be familiar with a, a story that I've used, borrowed from a friend of mine, Louis Midgley. Uh, and he got it from Martin Marty at the University of Chicago. Uh, Martin Marty said that, uh, and he was explicitly talking about the claims of the restoration. He said uh, it reminded him of a story of, of a French aristocrat, I think at the end of the 18th century. And she's taken on a tour of Paris and she's taken to uh, a spot in on the river Seine where, uh, where Saint Denis, Saint Dionysus, the, uh, the patron saint of, of Paris was martyred. And supposedly he picked up his head because he didn't want to be buried there. He wanted to be buried further down the river. And so he carries his head for a thousand meters down the river and, and that's where his church now stands. And the guy says a thousand meters, can you believe that? And, and I don't know what she really believed but she came back with a really good response. She says, well, I should think that in such a promenade it's the first step that is the most important. The rest is details. <laughs> and, and I agree with that. If, if Sandhiny took a single step carrying his head under his arm, then I don't care whether he walked 100 meters or 1,000 or 1,000 kilometers. It doesn't make any difference. He walked with his head under his hand. That's astonishing. If Joseph Smith was involved with God and angels at the very beginning of the Restoration, a whole lot of questions downstream sort of become a lot less important or or urgent to me.
1: I love that perspective. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for coming on today.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun.